MLS looks to play the long game amid still building messy mania. Plus, we take a look at the at a museum where you can get a piece of everything on display. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. I'm newsletter co-author Eric Fisher, and this is Front Office Sports Today. This past weekend was a celebration of soccer around the world, with the Lionel Messi-led Inter-Miami completing their march to the League's Cup title and Spain holding off England in the 2023 Women's World Cup final. With me to discuss both situations is my newsletter partner and fellow co-author, David Rumsey. David, how you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? Good. So just, uh, again, a fabulous weekend of soccer. Uh, Let's start with Messi. He's been the man of the moment here for more than a month here. Uh, Seven games, all wins, goals in every game, 10 overall. you know, it's just one of those things we keep writing about it day, day after day. And it's such a remarkable thing when the reality still beats the unrelenting hype around this guy. Right. It's been fun to see not just the game on Saturday night, but the reaction to it on Sunday and Monday. And now, I mean, we're not done. Wednesday, we have the U.S. Open Cup semifinal, Miami at Cincinnati. Another trophy potentially on the line soon for Messi in Inter-Miami. And of course, he's going to start regular season MLS play, which (laughs) it's just kind of crazy that all this has happened and he hasn't played a formal MLS match with the League's Cup being in. Absolutely. And already they're, they're, uh, it's interesting to listen to Don Garber. He's uh, uh, making some, um, you know, sort of pointed comments to the teams that like, listen, you just can't rely on this guy to, uh, you know, fill your coffers when he uh, comes to town here. You have to build your own fandom here. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because, yes, this is great right now, but he's obviously looking to build something for way beyond the sugar high. Right. And before Messi even played his first game, we wrote about the Beckham strategy and the Beckham effect, which had huge impacts on MLS. And now it's happening again with Messi. But it comes and it goes, like you said. So these teams have to capitalize on it, but also use it to build their own fans. Because like you said, Messi's not going to be here forever. So shifting over to the Women's World Cup, uh, you know, we obviously had the disappointment with the uh, the American team going out in the round of 16. But if you sort of put that off to the side here, really a remarkable tournament. We've got record attendance by a good margin for many prior iteration, uh, record ratings in Australia, record ratings in England. We're still waiting on U.S. numbers as we're taping this, but uh, it's hard to conclude anything but this be this tournament being a huge net win overall. Right. I think it's still on an upward trajectory, the Women's World Cup, and we'll see what happens with the next generation in in another four years. But it it was so much fun to watch. It was tough with some of the viewing hours and, of course, with the early exit for the U.S. Women's National Team. A little disappointing, but it was still awesome to see. I kind of became an Australian fan. I was rooting for them to have a home final, maybe. Matilda's run was a lot of fun. And, And still, they had the most watched TV program on record in Australia with just their semifinals. Imagine what a final match would have been. Unbelievable, yeah. There's soccer fever in, uh, obviously, we support the women's national team in the U.S., but clearly in Australia, in England, the record numbers that you said. I mean, from uh, looks like Spain has been all over their champion team, too, as well. 
So there's a huge opportunity now for these domestic leagues, not just our NWSL here in the States, but all the European women's leagues. They've all been on the upswing, a lot of investor interest coming in uh, all over the world, just given the overall rise of women's sports. I think that's going to be the next thing to look forward to is to what happens commercially around all these domestic pro leagues. Yeah, of course. Like you said, not just the NWSL, but the Women's Super League over in the UK has been on an upward trajectory as well, getting a lot more investment, producing more revenue. So I think you're right. And it just it was such a competitive World Cup, such a competitive tournament overall. So, yes, a lot of those players do play in the US and the NWSL, but there's other leagues that they play in. And I think that really benefited just the competitive nature of the tournament and some good quality matches. I mean, you can go back and look at these highlights, so many close games ended in penalty shootouts. It was really fun to watch and see everybody perform. Well, much more to come. But for now, we want to thank David Rumsey for uh, coming on and joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Coming up, we have an interview with Rob Petrozo, co-founder of the collectibles platform Rally. Petrozo just helped open a new museum called the Rally Museum, where everything on display, from a game-worn Jordan jersey to a genuine Triceratops skull, is available for investment. We'll have that conversation coming up next. I am joined now by Rob Petrozo, co-founder and chief product officer of Rally. Welcome, Rob. Oh, what's up, man? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. So Rally is, you know, it's a collectibles market like Golden or PWCC, but you have a different concept behind how you do things. So what's the Rally approach? Yeah, so we really want to make the top tier collectibles accessible to everybody. So what we did was we take individual collectibles, assets, everything from classic cars to sports cards to vintage Rolexes, all these things that have huge value, huge enthusiast communities, have made a lot of money for a small group of people, and we want to sort of democratize it. So we kind of treat each individual asset kind of like stock um, in our own kind of way. So each collectible is its own investment. It's got its own total value, its own share price. And then we open it up kind of like an IPO to invest and buy fractional shares of each one. So for five, 10 bucks, you can get you know a Honus Wagner card or a Porsche Speedster from 1955 or a pair of game-worn Jordans. And then those kind of trade on our marketplace through broker-dealers the same way you might see stock trade back and forth. But it's a little more interesting. It's not just a ticker symbol. And they're real, actual collectibles, some of the best of the best stuff in the world. And that IPO and trading process, that all happens under the rally umbrella, right? Is there anything actually in the public market there? No. Nah, so we've tried to make it as seamless as possible. And we do everything inside of our app. It goes through some other broker dealers and there's a lot of complex stuff in the back end. But I think that's kind of our strength is that we've made something really appealing to a regular person, to a collector who might be intimidated by the auction construct or maybe lost a couple of things on eBay and hasn't found the best one yet. You know, we have like the best of the best, the one of ones, the things you can't find anywhere. And we've kind of tried to tuck all that complexity away in an interface that makes it really easy to understand the story behind each asset. And how do you drum up excitement if, you know, you can't, you know, maybe I own $10 worth of a Honus Wagner T206, T206 card, but I can't hang it on my wall and I can tell my friends, I guess. But yeah, how do you get that collector's excitement going? Nah, I mean, you know what's funny? Like a lot of people that wind up on Rally, it starts with passion and they find this one thing. You know, we have 450 assets, give or take, on the platform now. And it ranges from, you know, dinosaur fossils all the way to that T206 Honus card. So they know the story of something. They come in, they buy one or two shares, and they kind of put it in their portfolio. And, you know, we could display it and there's some, some AR and some other things that we do inside the app and with some of our partners to bring it to life. But in reality, what happens is eventually people become real investors on the platform. They get one piece. It's based on passion. They show some friends the app or send the screenshot around. And then they start finding like arbitrage opportunities in the secondary market or they find something they didn't know existed that they find on Rally for a reasonable share price. 
And it really turns into like their other portfolio. So we've always envisioned a world where, you know, you'll have all your stocks and your equities on, you know, Robinhood or Schwab or public or wherever you put your stocks. You'll have all your crypto on Coinbase or Gemini or wherever you keep your crypto. All the alternative assets, all the collectibles are always in my mind going to live in one place and rally to me is the place that should be and will be it. And then in terms of drumming up that excitement, you know, we have a little over 400,000 users. We have, you know, tons of investors who are in the app every day. We've done really well with word of mouth. And I think that pride of ownership has always come from owning actual equity and having an ownership stake in the best version. A lot of people will have, you know, their version of like a reprint of the Honus Wagner card. But if you want one of the 30 that are in known existence and you want the real version of it, you could have the equity of it on rally. So that's kind of like the balance that we've always kind of walked on that a lot of our investors have taken a part of as well. Yeah, I wanted to get into that. Um because it seems like with collectibles generally, and especially with this, you seem to be going right at it. There's this element of speculation. And, you know, I think this this product, this whatever is going to appreciate in value. So is that is that a core part of what you're doing here? You know, we always try and find the examples that have the best history of returns and the rarest examples, which typically the ones that command the price that go up in value. A lot of them, the majority of our portfolio are hard assets. They're all kind of individual investments, so you can pick and choose your spots. But really, our goal long term is to sort of bring more attention, more conversation and, and change the behavior of consumers when it comes to collectibles and the things that they felt like were out of reach. We've got a lot of ways that we're working on right now, whether it's through merch, through partnerships, through our museum space here in New York to monetize the collection. So long-term, our approach has always been, once we create that community, to have cash-producing assets from what was once stagnant assets. And if we can do that effectively, we've started to do it with some of the digital products on the platform. We've got some real estate in the pipeline that's gonna be really interesting for people. If you can get a mix of speculation and a cash-producing asset where you have ongoing revenue or dividends, that to us is kind of the holy grail. And that's that's what we're really trying to get long-term. We start, we start to make some of those strides to get there as well. Yeah, and how would a, a dividend work in this scenario? Yeah. So, you know, we have, uh, let's say the Honus Wagner car, for example, you know, we do a limited, a limited run of merch that goes along with that collection. We do a launch party here in New York with a bunch of sponsors. We do some of the sort of elements of bringing it to life through events, pop-ups, anything that goes into the bank account of that asset, as long as it takes uh, less money to run the asset than it does money in the bank account that could be redistributed. So if we were to sell, you know, thousands of individual sweatshirts with the Honus Wagner chenille patch on it, goes into the bank account of that Honus Wagner, gets redistributed to investors. And we've started to do that with some of the NFTs, and we've done it with a couple of, uh, of airdrops that went along with assets that were on the platform that were trading somewhere else and redistributed those dividends. But really, each individual asset is its own company. It's got its own bank account. It's got its own cap table. If we can generate income through events, through merch, we can redistribute that back to our investors who own that asset. And does that help, um, you know, maybe deflate the possibility of bubbles around these assets where, you know, say, yeah, it's the Jordan Warren jersey, you know, maybe he, you know, Jordan gets in the news for some reason and releases another docuseries or something. And then that starts going up. And then people say, you know what, I, you know, I, I don't actually want to buy this jersey for $50,000. You know, you hit the price where people say, okay, this is too much. And then it kind of deflates the bubble bursts. Um, does having, do, do these, you know, this dividend model, does that help, um, yeah, stop it from just being a boom and bust cycle? I think there's a lot of things that contribute to, to stopping that behavior. We've done a lot on our side to, to try and create responsible investing. There's three parts of it. One is kind of what you said is making sure that there's, it's not just, you know, pure speculation all the time in the future. We're obviously working on making sure it's not looked at as gambling. We don't want to be sort of in that space. Our core demo is not, you know, a 19-year-old who's trying to YOLO in and out of trades. We get a lot of like, you know, 31, 32, 33-year-olds. You get people who are just starting their career. 
they're on their second or third job, but they understand like their 401k is not as interesting as this. So that's definitely one piece of it. But also like we've always sort of from IPO to trading, we've instituted a, a cooling off period where there's at least 90 days before it trades. So we can surface as much information as possible and make sure it's not something where you're just selling it the next day. But also, and I think one of the most interesting parts of what we've done is the education cycle that goes with it. We make sure that every story, every comp, everything that can go along with each individual asset and every email, every communication we send before it even goes public has all the information about what that card or what that piece of history or what that that artifact has done in the past. We don't make any judgments on what it could do in the future, but we're trying to lay out as much information as possible and make it rational. I think that the decision-making process when it comes to bubbles it's really based on you know a rational behavior without any fear of loss in a marketplace that can't support the future. So for us, what we see at retail a lot, I think more often today, because communities are kind of more closely connected than ever, is that everybody rushes into something. And we're trying to, and, and they'll say it's classic before it even happens. They want to make sure that they're just throwing as much money on it as possible. We saw that during COVID. And you had some of those boom and bust cycles. But for us, the education element, doing it in a, in a, in a logical way where it's not 24 hours a day trading and just been YOLOing in and out of things, and making sure that people are always abreast of what they're actually investing in before it happens has been a, a way for us, you know, to let the market kind of run itself and run through all the registered broker dealers who are part of Rally, but also that people aren't making irrational decisions without knowing at least what they're getting involved in. And that education process is a big part of what we're trying to build out with this platform as well. You guys just opened up a museum in, in downtown Manhattan. Uh, what's, what's the vision here? Why a museum? I think that you know these are these are tactile objects, and I'm I'm sitting in the museum. I'm sitting in like our podcast studio in the museum right now. I'm looking out at you know a 60 million year old dinosaur and a 50s era Porsche, and I'm looking at a Warhol Marilyn Monroe painting on a wall and a pair of game worn Jordans. All of this comes to life when you see it in person. I think it's one thing to see images of it, to see video, to see it inside an app and know it exists. The emotion and kind of the idea of, of these things being as important as they are is really obvious tenfold once you see it in person and it's right in front of you and you could talk to somebody here about what it is and what the platform does so for us it's a mix of of user acquisition and and marketing obviously because we don't we don't do standard marketing we don't do like a bunch of instagram spends or run commercials it's really about making sure that people know what we are seeing the assets letting them tell the story but it's also a place that we can run events which creates revenue for the business and for the individual assets it's a place that we can put merch and objects and collaborations on display that match the assets that are on the platform we can do things where we have pop-ups and events with people with the shared ethos in the community, but really it's about taking all these individual collectible, these items and bringing them to life in one place. So you get the breadth of the portfolio and we could change it out often enough that you see a little bit of everything that we have on the platform and really comes to life once you get that. And it's good. You know, we see like, we open on Saturdays uh, at like 12 and you see like little kids outside looking through the window at a dinosaur. You know what I mean? Like they just learned about this last week and now here is the most complete triceratops skeleton in the United States is in a storefront on Broadway in Soho. And once they walk in with their families, they start the conversation and you realize like this is something A, really important right now. It's going to be really important in the future, but it's incredibly valuable and the market around it is just beginning to form. And then it becomes an investment before they leave. And yeah, this is a sports show, but I have to ask about the Triceratops. <laughs> um, I didn't know there were privately owned Triceratops skulls. What's what's the story here? Nah, this is like the hottest game in town right now. There's probably a lot of athletes who have them in their living room. So, you know, at some point in the last like six years or five years, more started coming to auction and individual collectors started popping up and coming out of the sort of the, the shadows. And one of those was like Leonardo DiCaprio. Another one is Jeff Bezos, Nicolas Cage. So you had these kind of larger than life figures who are saying like the trophy piece for me is not going to be a painting. It's going to be putting a T-Rex in the middle of my living room. I think it's funny, you know, 
the one of the the real catalysts for dinosaurs as an investment was uh, the Rock on Thursday Night Football. Whenever that was last season, he's doing an interview, and behind him is a Triceratops skeleton. And he said it's Stan, and he's bringing up the story about the one that sold for thirty one million dollars at auction. It turns out that was like a cast model. But I got more texts the next morning on that Friday morning about dinosaurs than I'd ever gotten in the in the history of running this business. And that's really one of those things that. As much as, as sports is ingrained in the lives of every sort of, you know, male our age, no question, like Little League and everything through it, dinosaurs are something you learn about in fifth grade. And it's something that sticks with you forever. And they're these really, really important figures in sort of shaping your childhood. And you always go back to it. And that's something that's become like an incredibly sort of vibrant community of collectors. And in my mind, it's all going to get bigger. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have a, a seven-year-old. And so I, I've got a lot of dinosaur facts at my fingertips these, these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, where do you see the collectibles market going? I mean, we just we had this pandemic boom. Now we're kind of in the post phase of whatever that is. What what's next? To me, it really feels like like regular people are going to dictate the future, and it's not going to be the billionaires right now who are deciding what's important and what the auction records are going to be. And you know, it's funny you had on uh, you had one of my closest friends on the podcast a couple of weeks back, Adam Schwartz from uh, Horizon Media, and he was giving his take on like the shifting landscape in media and the way we ingest sports content. I think the consumption of collectibles and the shift in the market over the last few years that we're starting to see is really, really similar to what he was saying. It's new tech, it's retail consumer, they have the power to create these new markets and kind of dictate the success of individual platforms more now than ever in the past. And I think we're seeing that on rally in a lot of places. So while Mickey Mantle and, and you know Babe Ruth have kind of always been the benchmark, it feels like the big shift that's happening is, is the 90s and 2000s kids now who are starting to come into money. And they're looking at things like Pokemon, and they're looking at you know PlayStation games, and they're looking at Apple products. You know, today we just made a world record. We exited an uh, iPod for twenty nine thousand dollars. It's this, it's this shift of of these really important pieces of the nostalgia that represents. It's a large group of young adults, and I think once the that new idea or that wow headline of like a new auction result, or you see Post Malone bought this two million dollar you know Magic the Gathering card, once that stuff gets into the group chat. It spreads like wildfire. And that's what really changes the dynamic and changes the landscape of where we're going with collectibles right now is what that group chat looks like. So, you know, shout out to Adam and the uh, Find Nemo group chat, by the way. That's where all my collectible suggestions wind up. And that's really what dictates the market in my mind in the future, too. Yeah. And that, that everything you just listed off, I'm like, oh, man, I should have like hung on to my first iPod. I should have hung that's on to my it, first dude, magic cards. Who yeah, did? yeah. Who did it? Like, who got an iPod and was like, I'm going to hold at, at age like 15? It's like, I'm going to hold on right, to this. This thing's going to be valuable. 20 years. Yeah. It's going to be valuable. It's like, no, I'm ripping this open. And I'm loading up like, you know, Wu-Tang Clan on it right now. I have no idea, but it's not going to be something that sits sealed, you know? Yeah, all right. Okay, good stuff. Rob Petrozo, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, and thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. That's all for today. Thanks again to Rob Petrozo for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. See you soon. Hey.